for the next four weeks is to make our way through Psalm 22. And uh, the message for this morning will focus primarily on verses 1 through 10 or 1 through 11 of Psalm 22. I'm taking a different section of this as we move through week by week. But because it's a unit and because I want us to be able to understand and think about the beginning and light of the end and the middle, um, I'll be reading the whole psalm each time when we begin each Sunday morning. So listen again, people of God, to the word of God through the prophet David, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. 
My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your hearts live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The kingdom is the Lord's. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he has done this. Thus far, the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit in our heart, you would enlighten our eyes, enlighten our minds, Lord, that we would see Christ this morning, that we would be moved, Father, to affection for him, for you, by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, indeed, normally, as we would approach a psalm, that would be the most reasonable thing in the world to begin in our understanding of it by looking at the historical circumstances behind a psalm. Oftentimes, the psalms themselves indicate this as the approach by giving us a little bit of information as to the background for the psalm. Um, We might look, even if we don't have that title at the beginning, we might look for a particular incident in the life of David that can help us better understand what was happening. But as we've already indicated this morning, the relevant context for Psalm 22 isn't anything that's found in David's history. If we just reflect on a few of the verses, 16 through 18 in particular, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. I I hope you were able to hear how closely the passages that we read from Matthew and, and Psalm 22 lined up together in their details. These details are lining up with supernatural accuracy. The words of the mockers. The details about pierced hands and pierced feet. The casting of lots for clothes. Details that would have been, from David's perspective, humanly unforeseeable. But that we know were unquestionably part of the practices of the day and the way the Romans would execute someone. And so as we read the psalm in light of the Gospels, we see this very clearly as one of those instances in which Peter referred to in Acts. David, being a prophet, looked ahead and he spoke of the Christ. This psalm confirms the Gospels' accounts of Jesus' death to be the true Word of God. And these words confirm this to be a psalm about the crucifixion Of Christ. Christ himself had this psalm on his mind. We know that because he begins reciting it himself on the cross. What do we have here then? 
the Spirit of Christ wants us to understand Christ's crucifixion in light of this psalm. And here's a staggering thought. The Spirit of Christ is allowing us to see what is happening in Christ's mind and in Christ's soul as he is hanging there. And viewed this way, what we find there, what we find that's going on in Christ's thinking and in his heart is very surprising. And maybe more surprising to the degree that we very seldom think about the true humanity of Christ and what that meant. And one of the things, as we think about the humanity of Christ and we read this as a description of what he's going through on that cross, one of the things we notice is that Jesus' suffering on the cross is genuine human suffering, genuinely terrible human suffering. We read through the details of the verses. They show that he's being brought into a state of severe physical and emotional anguish and exhaustion. The details that we read in this psalm further emphasize the pain that he's undergoing, as well as the intense shame to which he was subjected, hanging there exposed without clothing before the mocking eyes of the whole congregation of the wicked. But worse than any of those details, worse than the physical suffering, worse than the shame being heaped upon him by his fellow countrymen, worst of all is this apparent absence of God, his Father. Verses 1 and 2, he's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. If we're astounded by the opportunity that the Spirit gives us to know the thoughts of Christ, on the cross, through this psalm, how much more astounding is what we find there? What we find that is going on in his mind and his heart. The Son of God prays and prays, but as he says, there is no answer. He is, as he says himself, forsaken. We get the idea of this genuine terror and agony. And this by itself is an incomprehensible mystery. From God's very own beloved son, God's protection has been removed. And all the powers of hell are unleashed to do their worst upon him. Why, why would God do this? As Christ asks, why would he forsake his son? Why would he leave him to such terrible suffering? Well, we know from the breadth of Scripture, central in Scripture, the central answer to this question for God abandoning his son at this point, was that Christ was paying the price for our sins. Prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, focuses in particular on that central purpose, the central meaning of what's happening to Jesus. 
But there's something else that Psalm 22 brings out, something especially in this, this section that we're looking at this morning that shows that in addition to Christ's suffering on the cross being a sacrifice for sins, it was also a test. It was a test of what? And here's something that might strike us as strange. It was a test of Christ's faith and his trust in his Father. What? Now, what do we mean by that? First of all, what, what is trust? Well, trust, in the language of the theologians, trust is one part of faith. We talk about, here's some $5 words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, the Latin words that describe the parts of faith. Notitia being the knowledge. To believe something, you have to know it. The next ascensus is assent. To believe something, you have to say, okay, I agree with that. But then there's this third element to faith. Theologians call it fiducia, and which we're translating as, as trust. Now, there's an illustration that I like to use to explain these three aspects of faith, and maybe you've heard this. It's definitely not original with me. Um, think of the example of a chair. And you're standing before a chair that's there, and someone makes known to you, there's a chair there. Noticia, I know that. They say, do you believe there's a chair there? And you say, yes, I do. There it is. Do you trust the chair? Well, how do we demonstrate that? Well, by sitting in it. If we look at it, we say, that's a chair. I have this intellectual idea that it will support my weight, and now I'm going to try it. And we sit in it. Those are, that's one way to talk about those three aspects of faith. Another, I think, game, I don't know if they play this in Canada. Maybe they're not as trusting as they are in the United States. The falling game. Do you guys know the falling game? Okay. So in the falling game, you have somebody who maybe you trust, and that's part of the thrill, right? And you go back, and you see how long they let you go back before they support your weight. Now, this, I believe, is the kind of test that Christ is undergoing and his faith. Think about, think about this pattern. We'll talk about more as we go on. But again, maybe you're still surprised by this idea. Christ trusting in God. What, does, what can that even mean? Well, the fact that Christ did trust in God, we see not just in this Psalm 22, but the New Testament speaks explicitly of him having done so a number of times. One place to be 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 Peter says of Christ, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ was putting his weight upon the promises of God. Hebrews 2.13, another place where the author of Hebrews attributes to Christ the words from Isaiah 8.17, I will put my trust in him. This is another aspect part of the mystery of the incarnation is that part of what Christ took on as he took on human nature was this very human necessity of trusting as a man in his father as God. And what we see happening here in Psalm 22 is that the cross becomes the ultimate 
test of that trust. Again, we see that this was Christ's experience in verses 1 and 2. And he asks this question, why have you forsaken me? What's required for us to have our trust truly tested? Well, to be tested in this way, we have to be in a trying situation. A situation from which, from all outward appearances, God isn't there. He's far away. He's not near. He's not on hand to help you. This, this falling game is not a game if the person says, okay, go, and he's got his hands on you the whole way down. There's that space that's necessary for you to discover whether you trust this person. And that space requires you do not feel their presence. For that initial fall, you must feel forsaken if the game is going to have its purpose. But how could, how could God forsake his son? This is Christ asking this same question. What does Christ know of this situation? What does he know of himself? Well, he knew that he was righteous. He knew that he was perfectly righteous. He has, in his experience as a man, twice now, once at his baptism and once on the Mount of Transfiguration, had the testimony clearly given that he's God's beloved son in whom God takes delight, the one in whom God is well pleased. Christ knows the general principles in Scripture. He knew what Psalm 37 said. The Lord, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. He knew Psalm 94. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. But as he knows, he is sinking. He is falling. And he does not feel the hands there to support him. And he calls out to be caught. But no one appears to hear him. Nobody answers him. From all, from all appearances, there's no outward evidence at this moment that his trust has not been misplaced. But this is where we see Christ working through this, passing this test. Because in contrast to the appearances, we see the heart of Christ as he asserts this trust in God. And even in the opening words, even in the opening question, my God, my God. And a third time here, my God. Even in the way he's addressing his father, there is this assertion of trust. This assertion that despite what is taking place, he still knows that God is his God. That God is his father. And as we move through the words of Psalm 22, we see Messiah continuing to resist this temptation to doubt God's care and love by reminding himself of what he knows to be true. And as part of this process, in verse 3, to further strengthen himself through this test, he recalls, he recalls the past examples of his fathers. 
Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. Do you hear this again? The repetition of this idea of trust and trust and trust and reliance. And he remembers, you delivered them. They were rescued. They weren't put to shame. And so we see Christ on the cross in his own heart combating this temptation by appealing to God's work in the past on behalf of his people. But in verse 6, we can imagine, we see the temptation renewed and intensified. Because even in this source of encouragement, there is a painful contrast. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Here we are again. What had happened to the fathers was not happening to Christ. He says, they were heard. I am not. They weren't put to shame. But I'm a worm. And verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, these words point us specifically to an attack, an attack against Christ's trust. And they, again, point us very specifically. We just read these words in Matthew being said to him on the cross. They point very specifically to the cross, the cross of Christ. As we heard in Matthew 27, they mocked him. He saved others. He can't save himself. Let him come down. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And then earlier in that same passage, they derided him, wagging their heads. You would destroy the temple. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down. If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Do this. Where have we heard words like that before? Before the incident of Christ's crucifixion. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. We see, as we read the Gospel accounts, echoing in the taunts of the onlookers, the very same temptations that had been formerly brought against Christ in the wilderness, in the direct person of Satan himself. And how can we doubt that Satan is behind these same things even now at this very moment? And I think that connection with that past temptation in the wilderness helps us to understand what it is that Christ is being specifically tempted to do now. How he's being tempted not to trust in God. This is playing upon what was said to Christ after his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And remember, that's the promise that immediately preceded the temptation in the wilderness. 
That was the declaration that sent him out into the wilderness. But in what way is Christ being tempted to give up his trust? Well, there's all kinds of ways that we can be tempted to stop trusting. We can be tempted to despair, just to give up hope altogether. Um, We can be tempted and led to trust in someone else besides God. And the scriptures warn against all of these ways of not trusting God by not trusting at all or trusting in man or trusting in our idols. But above all of these, one of the most common ways in which we can be tempted to stop trusting God is instead to trust in ourselves. Now, again, this falling game. You've, you've seen it where someone decides to see what's going to happen if they don't catch them. And what is inevitably the response of the person falling? We don't even think about it. We don't even make a decision. Our arms go back. We are going to save ourselves from hitting the ground if we don't trust this person. The farther we fall in that game, the more likely we are to start exerting our own efforts to make sure that we don't actually crash. I think this principle appears to be in play, in, first of all, in Satan's first temptation. God had sent Christ to do His will. And the Father had sent the Son to do His will in the Father's way. And Christ knew, and He knew fairly early on, that this meant living as a man, and it meant, in the end, going to the cross. Think about what's happening in the first temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Satan is continually tempting him to do what? To take matters into his own hands. Perhaps there's an aspect of proving that he's God's son. But more than that, is to find a way around his suffering that involves his own plan and his own approach. In the wilderness... Satan's playing upon Christ's unfavorable circumstances. The 40 days he's been out there to give power to his temptation. Satan says to him, you're God's son. And you've submitted to come into the world and live subject to the weakness of man? God said he'd take care of you, but then he left you like this with no food? And I think more to the point, you're hungry. Feed yourself. You can do it. You have the power. You're not very well known right now. You can fix that. Exalt yourself. Throw yourself down from the temple. Let everyone see. You don't have a kingdom right now. But you can. You have the power. You have the opportunity. Why go through the cross? Just worship me instead. What was so tempting you think about the first two of these especially. Is it these were things that would have been completely within Christ's power to do? Christ could have turned stone into bread and satisfied his own hunger. Christ could have thrown himself down from the temple and exalted himself. 
These were the kinds of things that Satan had been tempting Christ to do before. But Christ has withstood that temptation by doing what in the wilderness? Clinging to the word of God. Declaring again and again that he was going to place his confidence, not in his own ability to solve these problems, but in the one that had sent him. Luke tells us something very interesting about the end of that temptation. Perhaps you remember it. It says that Satan left off that temptation for a more opportune moment. Satan had seized upon those circumstances in the wilderness, but those were nothing compared to what he's facing now. Beaten, bloodied, hanging exposed on the cross. And we see what happens is that Satan resumes this same temptation and with amazingly increased ferocity. Okay, sure, sure. You passed these tests when the cross was three and a half years off. And the worst you were experiencing is hunger. But look, look at you now. What are you going to, you are going to die. Do you really know what that's going to be like? Do you really think you can handle that? Can you really trust God to deliver you when he's left you like this? What if you're wrong? Don't you want to be sure? You can end this now. Had that thought occurred to Christ? Certainly not as an option. But what did he say when the troops came? When they came to arrest him and swords came out, he said, Do you not think, Matthew 26, that I can not appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Christ, had a way. Christ describes his way out. All he had to do was stop trusting in the way that God had said he wanted him to do it, take matters into his own hands, make the call, the angels are there, he's free of this. And this is the point that Satan appears to be pressing home. This can all be over. Just save yourself, take control of the situation, do it your way, end the suffering. You can shut the mouths of all these insults right now. Listen, they're asking you. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Show them. Brothers and sisters, I think that this is the test. This is the temptation. It's a renewed temptation to take matters into his own hands. The same thing we saw in the wilderness. And we can only imagine Christ at this point feeling himself about to reach the ground as he falls and still not feeling the hands of God catching him. How tempting to reach out by his own power. Which of us would not have done so? But we see what's happening in Christ's mind and heart unfolding, and we see what he does instead. And instead of what we would do in saving ourselves, he reasserts the same trust. He addresses God again. Before, he had looked at what God had done for his fathers. Now, look in verse 9. Yet 
You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. So once again, he reassures himself by reflecting on God's past work, this time on God's provision for him, himself, and his own personal life from the most tender moments of his earthly life. No, says the Messiah. No, you're the one who took me from the womb. You've been my God from that moment. You're my God still. Even when I was the most helpless and the most vulnerable, you gave me every reason to trust you. The Messiah says, I'm not going to stop trusting you now. Now, there is much more suffering and anguish to be seen as we move forward in this psalm. But the talk of trust ends here. Bolstered, confirmed in this trust, the anointed one presses forward to endure the suffering that he willingly undertakes to complete and he passes this test, this test of his trust. And he has maintained his trust in obedience and he has done so perfectly. We'll have more opportunity to answer this next question. Similar to the question we asked at the beginning, why did he have to go through this? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 relates how Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And then Hebrews 5.9 says that he was, as a result, made perfect as the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What the author of Hebrews shows us here is this test of trust that we read about in Psalm 22, that we see fulfilled in the Gospels. It was for us. How does this help us? Well, it perfects Christ as the one to whom we can look when we find ourselves in the same circumstances, when our faith and our trust and our reliance upon the promises of God is squeezed and tested and tried. Because we know that Satan launches the same kinds of attacks against us as he did against Christ. Come on, if, if you are really the child of God that you claim to believe in, how could he possibly let you go through something like this? Look at what's happening to your finances. Look at what's happening to your marriage. Look what's happening to your child's serious illness. 
And we go through those circumstances and we pray and we pray. And sometimes for such a long, long time and we don't hear anything. And so we're tempted to doubt our standing before God. We're tempted to despair. And sometimes, as Christ was tempted to do, and maybe more of the time than not, we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. We see the course of obedience, and we see the course of obedience apparently not bringing about the results we want. And so we're tempted to question God. And we look at circumstances that make it look like obedience is going to bring further ruin. Not salvation, not rescue, disaster. And at the same time, circumstances that make it look as though disobedience might actually allow us to escape the difficulty that we're in. I, I know God says to respect my husband, or to love my wife, or to discipline my children, or obey my parents according to his word, but that just doesn't seem to be working. I think maybe I'm just going to have to be more realistic, more practical. One of the things that Psalm 22 shows us is that these are the same kinds of temptations that Jesus faced. And so, first, it's the same kind of temptation, since it's the first, the same kind of temptation. That means that the, the means that Christ employed to resist it can be employed by us as well. So there's, in, a, in one sense, Christ's continued trust in temptation is a perfect example for how we ought to place our own trust in God. Now, Scripture itself sets him forward as an example in this respect. Back to 1 Peter again, 1 Peter 2.22, when he talks about um, Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, he says later on, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter specifically sets Christ forward. This is how Christ resisted temptation. Trusting God. You do the same thing. When we're tempted in this way, we should certainly do just as Christ did. Reflect. Reflect upon God's saving work on behalf of our fathers before us. Reflect upon his proven reliability in your own personal life. How quickly we forget even what's happened to us as we get into our next trial. Remember these things. This is what we see Christ doing. You were faithful to our fathers. You've been faithful to me. I will continue to trust. Now I begin by saying that Christ's example of trust is an example to us. But Christ's triumph through this temptation is more than an example. And as a matter of fact, if an example is all that it were, then it would not be any good to us. Because we 
can't match it. There are some pretty significant differences between Christ and us in our various circumstances of temptation. For one, unlike Christ, most of the time, we don't always have the power to deliver ourselves. Furthermore, even our ability to trust is so imperfect. If I screw up my strength, I can probably trust like Abraham, who trusted in his own plans at the beginning to help God's promises along because that doesn't make sense. Perhaps on a especially good day, we can trust like David, who needed to take a census just to be sure he had what he needed to protect his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we cannot trust like Christ. We do not have his kind of trust. For one thing, we don't even have the same ground that he had for assurance. Again, what is the basis for his certainty that God would save him? What does the temptation keep coming back to? He was in and of himself God's holy son in whom God was well pleased. He had twice before the cross the testimony of God's perfect pleasure and his perfect righteousness. Try making your own righteousness the basis for your assurance. We must necessarily crumble when that's what we do. Our conscience is no better. We cannot trust like Christ. What can we do then? We can trust in Christ. Because Christ was doing, again, much, much more than merely giving us an example in how to trust, which he was. He was doing much more than just proving his trust. People of God, listen, by standing in our place and by allowing us to stand in his, he was perfecting the weakness, even of our trust. We can put our trust in Christ because he perfectly placed his trust in the Father. And we trust in all that he did, including the way that he trusted. The result of that, again, 1 Peter is that our trust in him becomes our trust in God. Chapter 1, verse 21 of 1 Peter. Who through Christ, talking about us, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus Christ helps our unbelief. Jesus Christ is our faith's author and perfecter. He prays for us that our faith may not fail. He lifts us up when we cannot walk on the water because we don't believe. 
He lifts us up. Christ's trust in God perfects our imperfect trust in God. And what's more, there's a sense in which his basis for trusting God becomes our basis for trusting God. He was God's beloved son in whom God is well pleased. Brothers and sisters, we are in him. When Christ, when God looks at us, when God the Father looks at us, he sees not the mess that we are, not the mess that our trust is. He sees his perfect beloved son in whom we have been wrapped in whose righteousness we have been clothed as with a garment. When you are tempted to end your suffering by taking matters into your own hands and doing things your own way according to your own will instead of God's will, put your trust in Christ. And you can do this. You can do this knowing that Christ knows what it's like to call out to God and hear nothing in return but silence. And you can do this knowing that as forsaken as you may feel at times, you will never be forsaken as he was. And you can do this knowing that because he allowed himself to be forsaken, you who trust in him, you never will be. When suffering comes that tests your faith, that tempts you to despair, or to disobedience, or to taking matters into your own hands, people of God, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Let's stand for prayer. Our Lord and our God, Father, who did not shrink away from forsaking your Son. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you who did not turn away from the cross, but rather despised the shame and did so for the glory of your Father. And Holy Spirit, who have given your people a glimpse into the very mind and heart and soul of the Son, Triune God, we give you glory for the great work that you have wrought for our redemption and for the glory of your name. And now we ask, Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would build up our trust so that we would wholly rely upon you through our every adversity. And let the trials that we face be embraced as opportunities for us to grow in holiness and to reflect more and more clearly the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would fulfill all your purposes for us. Let us live as your purchased possession, a people zealous for good works, always walking in the ways that are pleasing to you, that you may receive all the glory which you deserve, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, people of God, look up. 
and by faith and in trust receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.